Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Rain in many parts of the state. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, a conversation with the group that is supporting the University System of Georgia's decision and need to keep its colleges and universities open. Primarily, we want to support the universities in moving forward, stay in opening and staying open and improving instruction as we go along. That conversation coming up in just a moment. And in related news, a collective of college campus workers held a protest earlier today at the Board of Regents meeting in Atlanta. The United Campus Workers of Georgia wants the board to commit to no layoffs during this pandemic. The group also wants to see increased COVID-19 testing and contact tracing on college campuses. And at this time, 6,353 Georgians have reportedly died due to the coronavirus. And the State Department of Public Health reports there are 295,337 cases total in the state. There are 26,394 hospitalizations, and of those, 4,830 are ICU admissions. This, of course, is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, in some other news, the Florida Panhandle is being hit hard by heavy rains from Hurricane Sally's outer bands today. The storm is moving slowly near the northern Gulf Coast, where it will bring an extremely dangerous storm surge, flooding rainfall, and damaging winds. All that is expected this week. Now, right now, Sally is centered about 115 miles east of the southeastern part of Biloxi, Mississippi. President Donald Trump has already issued an emergency declaration for Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. And finally, some breaking news out of Georgia State University. President Mark Becker will leave his post at the end of June 2021. He's been GSU's president for the past 12 years. Becker making the announcement earlier today. When we spoke this past February, I asked President Becker about his long-term goals for the university and personally. But, you know, looking at the university itself long-term, uh, you know, we will go into a new strategic planning process this fall because the 10-year plan has coming, is coming to the end of its 10th year. And it, I think, you know, what I would like to see is a recommitment to our student success work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talked about graduation rates, but the goal is, is that if we admit you, you should graduate. Yeah. That is the goal fundamentally. And we can't lose sight of that. We have to continue not to be complacent about what we've accomplished, but to be driven to what's possible. And, you know, we're an institution that proved that things that people didn't believe were possible are possible. We've done that in, in the student success work. That's why universities and colleges come from across the country and around the world. But at the same time, our research, we've more than doubled our research funding during my tenure as president. Uh, we were for more than a decade of 55 to $60 million a year university mm-hmm. in terms of being awarded research dollars. Right now, we're in the seven months into the year, we're at $107 million and we're on pace for a record. Uh, what I'm most proud of there, and, and again, a legacy we need to build on, 
is if you look at universities that do not have a medical school and do not have an engineering school, because we do not, uh, we're number one in the country for research. No, no other university in the country that doesn't have a medical school or and does not have a, a medical school and does not have an engineering school mm-hmm. does as well as we do. That's it's a, it's a statement about the strength and the commitment and the quality of our faculty. But it's on that position that even more great things can be accomplished and really look forward to that and look forward to Atlanta being central to the growth and vitality of the city, you know, um, through our educational programs, through our partnerships, uh, be it with companies, with community organizations, as well as with governments and school systems. You know, um, we will always stay focused on our core mission, which is education and research, but doing that in a way that makes sense for Atlanta and the surrounding region. And how long do you want to be Georgia State University's president? Well, I don't, that's not a question I actually sitting around thinking about. Yeah. It's, um, you know, when I came here January 1, 2009, people said, well, he'll be gone in three years. And after three years, they said he'll be gone in five years. You know, so now they say he's been here 11 years. He'll be gone any day now. That's, uh, you know, I love what I do. I love this university. I love the people associated with this university, faculty, staff, students, alumni, our partners. And so, um, you know, as long as this work is still fun and rewarding, I think you'll see me still here. Again, Georgia State President Mark Becker announcing his plans to leave his post at the end of the academic school year. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Yes, we know election season is well underway. We're just under 50 days from A very big election. And until then, candidates will obviously debate the major issues, obviously health care, the economy, and yes, how to handle this coronavirus pandemic. Now, a report released by the George W. Bush Institute this year argues that foreign policy and specifically the preservation of democracy and human rights are also issues that should take center stage. And in fact, this report is called Choose Freedom, Revitalizing American Support for Democracy and Human Rights in the 21st century. And it also calls on corporate leaders, NGOs, and Congress to prioritize these issues as well. And it's also the focus of an event taking place right now at the Carter Center. And joining me now to discuss this is Christopher Walsh. He's a senior program manager of the Human Freedom and Women's Initiative at the George W. Bush Institute. Christopher Walsh, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. I appreciate you having me here. Let's talk about this partnership coming together between the Carter Center and the George W. Bush Institute. That's right, Rose. I mean, uh, we we, ta- we tackle a number of different issues. Um, at the Bush Institute, we have what we call our, our domestic excellence, which focuses more on domestic issues from uh, post 9-11 vets to education reform to economic reform, um, uh, and also collaborations with other libraries like the Clinton Library in Arkansas, the Bush 41 Library in Houston College Station. Um, the LBJ Library, and now, excitingly, through our Human Freedom Initiative in our Global Leadership Program, which which tackles human freedom issues, so civil, political rights, uh, that's our language for it anyway, um, but also, you know, uh, looking at women's issues internationally, um, but, but this collaboration with the Carter Center is part of our Freedom and Democracy Project, looking at the importance of freedom and democracy both at home and abroad, particularly at home, uh, particularly abroad, but but also looking at a few issues abroad as well. And, and like I said, we're very excited to have this collaboration to talk about the Choose Freedom Report with the Carter Center. I think it really gets at the bipartisan nature uh, that that everyone, that every American should really, uh, I think, be supportive of these issues. 
Let's talk about global leadership for a moment. And how do you, through your lens, if you had to give an assessment, to be fair, because each administration is different, but let's just look at this United States, maybe the last, since the Jimmy Carter administration. How would you assess global leadership toward democracy and and human rights? Well, I think the first thing I want to say is I think when people talk about the importance of the United States supporting human rights and democracy abroad is to turn the mirror inwards. Mm -hmm. And and look, the United States has to have what uh, I think Nicole Bibbins Sadaka, who wrote the Choose Freedom Report, I think brilliantly calls humble confidence. Uh, We have to realize that democracy has not been perfect. And that the United States, living up to its values and ideal, its democratic ideals and values, has not been perfect. We don't have a spotless record on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that does not mean that, that the values uh, of, of people supporting their individual political or economic freedoms are not good. And that's the United States, which I think is uniquely uh, positioned with its economic and political might uh, to support these values in concert with its allies, uh, should be confident in promoting them and supporting others to realize those values who I, I think around the world, regardless of culture or country of origin, really ultimately in their hearts desire to, to have freedom. Um, and so when you look back over the last, you know, 70 years or, or to the 70s, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's been a historical foundation uh, of the United States supporting democracy in some way or another, both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, and there have been different points of emphasis for different presidents, but you know, starting with Jimmy Carter, uh, you know, where you talked about the event we're doing later today, I, I think he really got it at injecting human rights uh, into the discourse, whether that was criticizing friends or or or, or uh, opponents or competitors, mm-hmm. uh, that human rights were important. Uh, again, didn't get everything right, but but still was important to inject that into the conversation. And then you go to a, a, an administration like President Reagan where at uh, Westminster announces the uh, the beginning of the establishment of the National Endowment of Democracy, mm-hmm. really operationalizing the importance of supporting democracy overseas. Um, and when I talk about democracy support, I think it's important to explain what, what that is. Uh, it's usually, uh, it, it's political, you know, it, it takes the form often of, I think we, we think of as political competition, supporting, uh, expanding the capacity of political competition, free and fair elections, uh, strong political parties that advocate for their their constituents. Uh, it's it's building uh, a strong civil society. It's um, it's it's supporting the free flow of information. It's strong and transparent, accountable governance. Uh, but it's also other things too. You know, those that's what we usually think of. But it's it's other things that develop a, a free society. Uh, it's education. It's mm-hmm. healthcare. It's infrastructure. It's economic development. And you know, since the '70s, and even even uh, even since the end of the Cold, uh, sorry, the the World War II, mm-hmm. building the the, the uh, building the the uh, the liberal democratic order that the United States helped create, I, I think there has been this this commitment at some capacity, at some level, to freedom and democracy, and so it's been strong. Um, and that's that's how I would assess it. So you assess it as being strong, and you admit that it has not been perfect, but when this new report calls on U.S. leaders and public officials to, quote, revitalize their support of democracy. Uh, You may want to dissect that a little further and and explain that for our listeners. Sure, absolutely. I think I think what it goes to is uh, let me take a step back for a minute. And, you know, this this report, uh, Choose Freedom, did not come out of thin air. Mm -hmm. It's been based on a foundation of work that the Bush Center has been doing for the past five years or so, probably a bit longer. Uh, But looking at a crisis of confidence in democracy, uh, uh, and, and it seems to be a weakening of consensus. 
back in 2018, we did a uh, public, some public opinion survey research with a uh, democracy watchdog called Freedom House mm-hmm. and also the Penn Biden Center uh, in a bipartisan effort to look at American views of democracy here, the quality of democracy at home, but also how they, how they looked at supporting democracy overseas. And what I'm, what I'm very excited to report is that the report found uh, large majorities of Americans supporting that democracy as a system that they wanted to live under, which was great news. And also, uh, as I described it earlier, uh, US democracy support overseas, they were in favor of that. What was less encouraging were people afraid about the future of democracy? You know, mm-hmm. Was it representing my interest? Different groups of people saying, well, does democracy work for me the same way it works for others? Uh, and I think, I think we all have the same goal that we want a, a free and equitable system that, that allows us to pursue our interests, to have opportunity. But some people are just, I think, understandably frustrated with gridlock, uh, with polarization. And I think that's where you're seeing maybe uh, some people being swayed by isolationist and nativist attitudes. Uh, And so that's, I think, where we want to make sure that everyone is on the same page, that democracy is a good thing. Uh, Because I have not seen the system, despite all its flaws that democracy has, that does the same job of protecting freedom, uh, individual freedom, economic freedom, and political rights that democracy does. Well, even right now, at the time of this conversation, there's a lot being made because Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu will join President Donald Trump and foreign ministers of United Arab. You and I could have a whole nother conversation. Whenever you mention Israel, obviously, there's, depending on whom you ask, you're going to get a different response. How would you address that? Well, admittedly, I, I'm not an expert on uh, the Middle East and, uh, and Israeli relations, but Uh, Just to give you kind of a broad assessment, I I think this is why, as we mentioned in the report, uh, that the United States, despite all its influence, despite its power, should not be alone in these efforts. Democratic alliances are so crucial uh, to maintaining a a more uh, free and just society and world. Um, And so for that reason, I think it's important to get these different perspectives from our allies into the the conversation. to, to, to give that other perspective, to sway the United States where maybe it doesn't want to listen. And unfortunately, that just that hasn't been seen lately, but there's another aspect to this as well. Uh, and I think it's, it's us on this show right now. Uh, I think too often we say that, you know, the US's role in the world, US support for democracy overseas is beginning and ending with the federal government. Mm-hmm. But it's more than that. It's civil society organizations. It's you and me. It's informed uh, It's informed citizens that have different ways to sway the government through either elections, through advocacy, through um, uh, through those through those outlets, and again, that's uh, because I'm not an expert. I know that's that may not be a satisfying answer, but that's the direction I would start to go to solve this problem. And if our government is not doing that, it's incumbent upon us to, as citizens through those outlets I mentioned to, to persuade them to do otherwise. Well, let's talk about that because, as mentioned, uh, this report was released obviously during a major election year, and it does make a number of recommendations, including calling on candidates to debate foreign policy outline their human rights policy positions, and ask civic organizations to educate voters on foreign policy issues. So don't leave it just up to the federal government. As citizens, we put pressure on them by our vote. Uh, I'd say so, yes. All right. Well, this report also calls on prioritizing human rights and democracy to become more of a bipartisan issue. Now, you and I both know 
Christopher, with this current administration, uh, folks working together across the aisle has been limited and challenged. Well, I think it has to do with with sometimes who the messenger is, uh, and 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 you know trying to trying to be in line with your your political team. But I think generally, based on the the poll that I shared with you earlier, the the, the research study I shared with you earlier, that Americans generally seem to support these issues. Um, and so what I would suggest is, you know, even if there's problems leading uh, in the executive branch, perhaps on these issues, I think we can look with some optimism uh, to Congress. Uh, and again, yeah, there, there's not been uh, a lot of a lot of reason for for excitement about bipartisan cooperation, except maybe uh, on these issues of human rights and democracy. Um, you've seen it with diff with various acts over the last uh, ten years, from the North Korean Human Rights Act. Uh, to the Magnitsky Act, holding uh, human rights abusers accountable mm -hmm. uh, and letting, letting human rights abusers know that there is a cost for their actions, uh, to the Uyghur uh, Human Rights Policy Act that was recently passed. This gives me some hope. Again, they, they may be uh, battling over domestic issues and there may seem like there's no uh, compromise in sight. But on human rights and democracy, as I said, there there has been movement on this. There seems to be some agreement. And even in the areas they disagree, uh, these issues are still bringing them together. So that, that does give me some optimism. Uh, let's talk about today's events and what you all hope comes out of this this forum here at the Carter Center. So uh, since we launched this, this project, the Choose Freedom Report, we knew that we didn't want it to be just a discussion among policy elites in Washington, D.C., we wanted to essentially do a, a road show. We wanted to get out there into the different communities across the nation with, with folks who might not otherwise always be engaged in these types of conversations. It might be kind of a third or fourth or even fifth issue on their agenda of things they want to care about. Uh, and at least open the possibility to them that, you know, what happens overseas matters to us here at home. Um, and you can, I mean, just the most prominent example, uh, two prominent examples in my mind, are, I have a colleague uh, at the Bush Center named Joseph Kim. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a North Korean refugee. He recently became an American citizen, and he's such a positive and upbeat guy. In fact, uh, talking about the celebration of democracy, uh, I was recently with him uh, when he voted for the first time in a Texas primary a few months ago, which was really just a, a very cool uh, matter. But you know, he was born in North Korea, what, what that we consider at the Bush Center to be one of the least free places on earth. Uh, and he escaped, he risked his life to escape, and he, he came to the United States where he lives in, in relative freedom uh, and, and has opportunity to pursue his own, his own interests that he did not have in North Korea. Now, what does this story have to do with, with uh, why should it matter to Americans here? Well, when we think of North Korea, we often think of the, the, uh, the nuclear weapons issue, the security issues. Mm -hmm. But what we don't often talk about is that these human rights issues are, are directly tied to the nuclear weapons. The dictator of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, exports slave labor, his own people, to different countries and gets money in return for that that then funds his nuclear program. A nuclear program uh, that we know has the ability to at least reach Alaska here in the United States. So you see how these human rights issues and security issues are tied together and should really, I think, resonate more so with Americans in ways that they, they don't even realize. Um, you also look at, at, uh, at the interference of authoritarian powers who are either trying to disrupt the democratic system or to promote their own agenda. I'm thinking of countries like uh, Russia and China, respectively. Um, we know for a fact that they have attacked our, our elections in 2016. Um, 
We know that they have uh, they pushed disinformation uh, through social media. We know that they've tried to divide us um, by manipulating us again through social media. I mean, several years ago, there was, I believe it was in Houston, there was a protest and counter protest that was orchestrated by the internet research agents in Moscow. So think about that. A kind of shadowy Russian group manipulated Americans in the United States to go and try and pit them against one another. So we go out and we talk about these issues who aren't really thinking about them or thinking about them in that way and try to make the case of why this is so important. Uh, another group in there is young people. You know, Nicole Bimman Sadaka is, in addition to being uh, brilliant on this subject, is also a teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, she teaches at Georgetown University. And just anecdotally, she has found that, you know, there is a, a, a just a, a, a deep disconnect between students uh, with the concept of democracy and human rights. They're very pro-human rights, but there's I, I understandable skepticism for I think some of the reasons we've discussed about democracy. Uh, and so it's important to reach out to students and have these conversations um, about why it matters, why democracy, not an end in and of itself, but is a is the best vehicle to protect human rights. We've talked about personal, we've talked about political rights, we've talked about economic rights. And that's what we hope to achieve today at the Carter Center. Again, reaching these different audiences uh, and just spreading why it's so important. And as we wrap up, let me ask you this, Christopher, because obviously, as you know, the entire planet is dealing with this pandemic. Here in the United States, couple that with concerns about when will we turn the corner on dealing with this, the economy, getting people back to work, calls through social justice in terms of police reform. So there are a lot of these issues, health care, obviously, a lot of these issues that are at the top. Do you think foreign policy and human rights and a candidate's stance on that, do you think that is at the top of the voters' mind right now? I mean, I'm, I'm realistic on this. I don't think it's at the top of the, uh, at the of their list right now. And, and I perfectly understand that. I'm, I'm very sympathetic to, uh, you know, this is a challenge that we often deal with. How do we make this matter to other people? How do we show that it's important given the slew of issues that, you know, they sit around the dinner table and, and worry about, rightfully so. But what I would hope is we can at least raise this issue, uh, the profile of this issue, and make people think twice in a way they haven't before about why it's important. I mentioned a few reasons from the, the tie between security and human rights issues in North Korea, how that affects us here. The attacks on our elections that are not going to go away unless the U.S., I think, is more proactive mm -hmm. in supporting a world order that supports uh, transparency, strong government, uh, democratic institutions and human dignity. But also think about it this way. And, and you know, it's not it's not the most uh, grandiose or inspiring, but especially with China in particular. As mm -hmm. you've seen uh, China rise and try to exert its influence, uh, it often comes out in the form of censorship. China doesn't want us talking about issues, not just people in China, but people overseas from Tiananmen Square to the Uyghurs, to Hong Kong, to Taiwan. Um, and, and you've seen this attacking the ways that, that we like to enjoy ourselves, from movies to uh, sports games. You, you saw what happened with the NBA in Hong Kong and the Uyghurs. Uh, or I think about there's the remake or the the new the new episode the new uh, the new Top Gun movie with Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. You know, there's an interesting thing where the the flag of Taiwan is featured on his his jacket, and the Chinese investors in that insisted that the Taiwanese flag, for their domestic reasons, should be removed. So think about how you know these small they seem like small issues, mm -hmm. but they are getting stronger and they're affecting the way that we express ourselves freely and the way that we uh, we like to entertain ourselves. 
after today's forum and obviously due to concerns about the pandemic. But folks can go online and get a snapshot of what's taking place. We'll have a link on our website for all that information. Christopher Walsh, Senior Program Manager of the Human Freedom and Women's Initiative at the George W. Bush Institute. And also the report is called Choose Freedom, Revitalizing American Support for Democracy and Human Rights in the 21st Century, partnering with the Carter Center. Mr. Walsh, thank you for taking the time. Good conversation. Thank you, Rose. I appreciate it. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. We've had so many conversations on this program about our institutions of higher learning and how they've all adapted during this unconventional school year. And several weeks ago on the program, I spoke to a collective of campus workers with concerns about the University System of Georgia's reopening plan. Now, here's Rebecca Ward, a biology professor at Georgia Gwinnett College. They could have done this safely, and they chose not to. They could have minimized the number of people on campus at any one time by allowing anyone who wanted it to work remotely. They didn't allow people who have high-risk loved ones to get out of face-to-face. So it's been a few weeks now, and you may recall we also spoke to student journalists throughout the state who have been covering this. So now we're going to turn our focus to another opinion. There are those who want the students to remain on campus at Georgia's colleges and universities. And joining me now to discuss this is Joy Morin and Nicole Johnson. They are the co-founders of a Facebook group connecting those with the same perspective. The group is called Keep Georgia Universities Open. And we're also joined by Joy's son, Zach. He's a freshman at UGA. Thank you all for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Zach, let me start with you. Uh, You're a freshman at UGA. I know you didn't expect to go back maybe and having to wear masks and social distancing when you made your application to to UGA. How's it going right now through your lens? Uh, It's a little different, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, I'm not too happy with it, but, you know, it is what it is. This is what life's brought. There's been a lot more negative stuff that's happened this year for everyone, myself included. So, I mean... Every, I, I follow the measures. Most of my friends follow the measures. Uh, mm-hmm. Wish it wasn't this way, but you can't always get what you want. Yeah. How's class? Is everyone wearing the mask and the labs and lecture halls and the professors? You all are social distancing as best as possible? Yeah. So, I mean, my classes are extremely limited. They're pretty much, you know, they're pretty much hybrid. If I want to take it completely online, I could. That's always an option. And for the limited in-person stuff we do have, everyone's in masks, everyone's social distance and the, like, between the chairs in the lecture hall, professor has masks. So, I mean, yeah, it's pretty strict, strict adherence to the, the guidelines. I haven't seen anyone not wearing masks during the in-person classes. And if I didn't want to, if I was at risk or I was concerned about the virus, I could just not go mm-hmm. to the class without any penalty. Now, Zach, I don't want to put you on the spot because your mom is on this interview as well. But <laughs> what about when you go off campus, man? Are you still following? Are you, you and your friends still following those same measures? 
Uh, I mean, yeah, I would say, I mean, it's probably to a lesser extent to just for the general population, I would say, because it's not as easily as enforced. I mean, that's mm -hmm. kind of impossible to enforce when you're off campus. But I mean, yeah, I mean, people, I mean, even when I go outside, just in public, people are wearing masks all the time. So I don't, I think it definitely depends on the person. Zach, you wear your mask most of the time when you're off campus? Uh, when it's required. When it's required. When, obviously, if you're going, going into an establishment. Yeah, if I'm inside at the gym, mm -hmm. the, at Ramsey, walking out of my dorm. Okay. Joy, let me bring you the conversation. I imagine you might have had some concerns with Zach. Not only just going back to UJ, he was a freshman. What concerns did you have for him? going? Uh, my main concerns, you know, with Zach were, you know, just the normal concerns that a parent has when their child goes off to college. Um, we had assessed the risk, and he's in an extremely low risk group. So I didn't really feel like the virus was a particular threat to him personally. So I wasn't really worried about that. I knew they'd put lots of protocols in place to minimize whatever risk there was. So, you know, the virus wasn't the main thing on our mind. You know, parents obviously are concerned anytime their kid goes off to school, they're gaining independence, they're, you know, taking new, getting some new experiences and picking up some new responsibilities. So, you know, you just want to be sure that that they're safe, you know, all around mm -hmm. driving their car, all the other stuff that students can get into um, seemed to me like they posed a greater risk to him. So those were more my concerns, but he seems to be settling in really well and, and finding this place. So I feel pretty comfortable with him being there. So, but that comfort level was based on how the University System of Georgia, their plan that they outlined in returning students and obviously freshmen too, and faculty and staff back to campus, their plan was satisfying for you. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it, I guess, I don't know how to really phrase this, but it's, I don't feel that he's at a particularly high risk. So more concern with not having him spread it to people who are vulnerable would mm -hmm. be perhaps more my concern because I'd, I think if he were to get, I mean, he may have already had it for, we really don't have any way of knowing because um, so many of the students have really mild symptoms or either asymptomatic. So it's possible he's already been exposed and we we didn't even have any knowledge of it. So in terms of the virus risk, I just I really it's not one of my biggest concerns, but I don't want him to put other people at risk. for Sure. sure. Zach, may I ask, have you been tested? I've not been tested. Why not, Zach? Uh, I haven't had a reason to be tested. I haven't really shown any symptoms. I haven't been exposed to anyone that has tested positive and had symptoms and for, per, you know, for any prolonged period of time, maybe it was like, oh, my friend three weeks ago tested positive when I wasn't with him. It was, you know, mm -hmm. not really a reason to get tested. So I'm not going to get tested. I don't want to, you know, yeah. So Zach, you're saying you, you want to wait till you might display some symptoms or if you normally know you've come in contact with someone that's when you will wait to get tested yeah I would I would get tested if I have a reasonable reason to get tested I'm not just going to get tested for no reason and then you know there's a slight chance of a false positive or you know something like that or you know any number of things so I you know and then it's like oh now now they got to throw you into quarantine house and you got to be quarantined and you know it's hmm. If I don't have a reason to get tested, I'm not going to get tested. Okay. Nicole Johnson, let me bring you into this conversation. Do you have kids who are attending one of Georgia's colleges or universities? I do. I have a senior at UGA, and I have a freshman at Kennesaw. 
Do you have any concerns about them going back in the way that USG, their reopening plan? Was there anything concerning for you? Well, as Joy mentioned, I had all the normal concerns about my, you know, especially a freshman starting. Um, so I definitely, but with with my son, um, he has learning disabilities. So I also had concerns about um, academic tutoring and other things that go in addition to, you know, COVID protocols and that sort of thing. Nicole and George, did y'all have other conversations with parents that might have had a different opinion or just flat out was in opposition of your perspective and was thinking maybe, you know what, maybe the students should just stay at home at least for this semester. What were those conversations like? Well, I mean, we've definitely heard from people who who disagree with us. Um, I think I was um, shocked really just at how many people did actually agreed with us Mm -hmm. when we started the group, the numbers just immediately we the group was filling up and you know so we realized quickly that there was a lot of support we have heard so much from people who were nervous about the university's opening and um i was relieved to see that i wasn't alone in in my thinking yeah you all have a little bit over five thousand members right now correct we do what's your mission with this facebook group is it just for folks to have concerns or folks who share your same perspective to come together? Are you holding the system accountable as well? Are you reaching out to them to make sure that they either continue with these guidelines or maybe if you have any concerns about some of the measures they have implemented, is there anything that you all want changed? Is, is that the focus of this group? Well, the, the focus, I think the focus may shift um, as we go along because the issues change. Um, we obviously started out with the goal of keeping the universities open and that continues to be the goal. Um, but as we hear from people, we realize there are so many discrepancies in the types of classes and the, the instruction that, that students are getting. And so, you know, we, we wanna improve that situation as well, but, but primarily we want to support the universities in moving forward, stay in opening and staying open and improving instruction as we go along. Joy and Nicole, you can answer this too. And I know it's not lost on you and Zach, you can chime in as well. When we've heard the numbers, the increasing numbers of confirmed cases at some of the universities and colleges, UGA, Georgia Southern, is that concerning for you all? Now, Zach says he takes, he tries to adhere to all that and Joy, you have said that you trust him and he's not in a in a high risk, but it's not just him. It's thousands of other students and thousands of other people. So when you hear that those numbers are increasing on campus, is that not concerning for you all? So, yes, I think the numbers are of concern. I think a lot of people are talking about them and looking at them. But I would say that I don't think it's unexpected that the numbers would go up. People you know, as they opened the schools, there was an expectation that we would see cases and that there would be some spread. You're bringing large number of people into small areas, putting kids in dorms, you know, where they're close to each other. So, you know, I don't think any of the measures in place are really expected to completely stop Mm -hmm. or halt any transmission. I don't think that's a reasonable expectation. So having said that, I don't think it's surprising, but the students who are at risk, should hopefully be aware of that. I'm, I've heard of several students who are taking a gap year, students who are opting to do classes online, professors saying that they won't 
punish students if they don't show up to any face-to-face -face portions that they can do everything online. So it appears to me that the options are there for people to, to take the precautions that are needed for themselves individually. And you know, I think it's, it's not really a one size fits all solution. You know, everybody's got different risks. I think, you know, so while it is concerning, I don't think it was unexpected. And I think that there are ways to manage the risks of the people that are vulnerable. And, and those seem to be evident and, and being taken advantage of. Nicole, when you hear about the, the numbers, well, I mean, I feel that, again, like Joy said, we, it was anticipated that the numbers would go up. And, and you know, I'm, of course, concerned about the health of the students. Um, they seem to be handling the virus well. Um, and so that's encouraging. I want to read a letter, actually, that was sent today from student at UGA. His name is Brennan Cox, and he is the president of the UGA Interfraternity Council. And he has written a letter to Governor Brian Kemp with some concerns about what's taking place in Athens in terms of off-campus. And he writes, while the successful efforts of the University System of Georgia Chancellor Stephen Wrigley and UGA President Jerry Moorhead to provide a safe on-campus experience are more than commendable, but he's saying that something's troubling, and that's a contrast in student behavior seen in packed sidewalks, dark bars, and off-campus parties. This behavior and consequent rise in positive cases among UJ students is likely enabled or exasperated by the mayor and the commission's ill-fated choice to not enforce the executive orders in their entirety. Now we get to a situation where students like Zach, when they go off campus, because the surrounding communities, the behavior of those folks in the surrounding communities of these colleges and universities play a part as well. So while everything may be pretty stable, so to speak, on campus, it's when Zach goes off campus. And Zach, you just told me, you said you do the, you do the best you can, you wear your mask when it's in force. But when you hear those numbers, and is this accurate? Are we seeing packed sidewalks and dark bars where folks are crowded in and off-campus parties? And is that happening? Are you seeing that? Uh, I mean, yes, I, I know, I do know such uh, events occurring, social media and other mediums, like I'm aware people post about it, oh, look at this, everyone's packed together or whatever. But strictly speaking, this isn't really a, a school issue if you think about it, because these are off-campus activities. They would, if they, if they shut down the university or sent us all home, these places would still be open for like for bars, for example, they would still be open. And, you know, if you just sent people home to their, you know, hometown, they would just go and they're going to the bars here because they're here. They would just go to the presumably the bars in their local hometown like it. And, you know, a lot of the, the businesses in Athens are dependent on students, for example. So it hurt the businesses in Athens. But um, I mean, it. I understand the added volume from people coming into the university is added volume to the the bars and other off-campus activities, mm -hmm. but it, from a university standpoint, I, I guess if you wanted those activities to stop, you would have to look towards you know the governor towards or you know whatever local government institution actually shutting down the the off-campus institution which is having community transmission. 
But can you understand, Zach, someone saying, well, but when you all come back onto campus, therein lies the issue or the chance for increased confirmed COVID-19 cases. And Zach, I want to ask you, have you attended an off-campus party where folks weren't wearing masks? And it was, it was pretty crowded, pretty happening. Uh, no, I, I personally not. Do you, is it, that's, that's based on your choice of not to? Due to the concerns about the virus? Not over the concerns over the virus, but the fact that I might be spotted there and someone, you know, might try and, you know, expel me from the university or some sort of other negative consequence. Really? You think that would happen? Uh, I mean, I've seen plenty of social media posts uh, on Reddit, you know, people Mm -hmm. calling other people terrible people with no exception that they want other people to die and other you know, ad hominem attacks. So, um, and that's just not really something my personality that I like to do either. I'm not like, that's not my kind of thing. I'm not sure. a big partier, drinker, anything like that. So normally that's not something I would do. And then I just see all the kind of shaming and public, you know, just, oh, look at these people that they're trying to do this and they're putting everyone at risk. So I'm like, you know, it's just not worth it. Joy and Nicole, you all are parents first and you have expressed that you have confidence in the system. Do you both really believe that there is a way that the students can have in-class instruction and still the university system be able to mitigate the transmission of this virus, regardless of the numbers? I think that we have to try, I suppose, in extreme case, hypothetically, if we were seeing lots of hospitalizations and a huge spike in deaths, that they would definitely need to take some action. I don't think that's likely to happen. And I think that if at all possible, we need to continue forward and kind of stay the course and do the best we can with the situation we've got on hand. Because if we send these kids home, send them around the country to different communities, we're going to be possibly creating the same thing in multiple places. So if we can keep it localized, if we can try to encourage the university can have activities, try to encourage the students to remain on campus more separated from the local community. But the other thing to remember is that a large number of these students have year-long leases, live in apartments, are part of the Athens community. The upperclassmen, many of them, if they close the campuses and go virtual, will continue to be in the Athens community interacting. So I'm not sure it solves the problem. I think it's a very complicated issue and there are lots of things to consider. There's lots of risks across the board that you know the conversations needs to be complete and it can't just be, look, we have a lot of cases. We need to respond to that. We need to look at all all the fallout, all the possible side effects, backlash, you know, one of the big things that our group has been very concerned about is the mental health of these students. They've been isolated all spring. They've lost incredible contact with their friends. They've lost life experiences that most of us have taken for granted. We all had and enjoyed, you know, they're in a big transition time moving to independence and in their mind, realistically, it's not clear what the future is going to look like for them. It's not clear how much normalcy they can expect or when they can expect life to go on. And, you know, even the CDC has raised a lot of red flags about the risk of suicide and overdose. And I think we're seeing that. I personally have had, you know, contact with people who have family members who've taken their own lives. And it's a, an enormous tragedy. And we 
We just can't ignore that. And we have talked about that, and you are absolutely right. We have talked about how this has taken a toll on the mental health of college students and a lot of folks, so you are absolutely right in that. I'll ask Nicole that same question. You would support the system's decision if they had to only go online. Is the increased number of cases, is that the sole metric that they should be using to make that decision? I, I think that I'm not sure that that is. I, I don't know that number of cases um, by itself it is a reason for, you know, to sound the alarms. Um, again, I think hospitalizations are relevant and obviously deaths. Um, but I think that we, we do have to manage um, the situation no matter what happens. I mean, we, we've got to figure something out. There are consequences on all sides of this. I mean, if we send the students home, there are consequences to that and we and we still have to manage. So I don't I don't think there's any easy fix. I don't think you can say, let's close the universities and then all the risks go away. That's not that's not gonna solve it. So we've started this course and I think we need to stay on it and just address the issues as they come. As we wrap up, and Zach, I started the conversation with you and asking you how things were on campus, and you said, you know, look, I don't like it. I didn't sign up for this, but, you know, it is what it is, and you're you're dealing with it. How has the mental toll been on you, if you don't mind me asking? How are you handling all this? Um, It's definitely a little isolating sometimes, taking classes, and it's just like, well, I've got two classes online over Zoom, and then what else? There's not really another campus activity, so it can get a little isolating, but to be honest, it's really nothing compared to what happened this spring and what I had to endure. And a lot of my friends who are in a lot worse mental situations had to endure. And, you know, I would take this a million times over, you know, being locked in my house and not knowing what the future holds for an indefinite period of time. So it's not great, but it's a lot better than, um, you know, from March onward. What are you majoring in? Have you decided yet? Uh, Political science. Welcome to my world, Zach. (laughs) I appreciate that. Zach, a freshman at the University of Georgia. You a big football fan down there? Uh, Yeah, I'm a pretty good. You're going to be able to go to the game? They're not letting everybody in, so you're going to try to get a ticket? Yeah, I I applied for all the tickets that were available for the the student in the lottery system, so yeah. Y'all going to win the SEC? Of course, of course. No, you're not, Zach. Y'all say that every year. (laughs) Zach, a freshman at UGA, we also heard from Joy Morin, his mom, and then also Nicole Johnson. They are the co-founders of Keep Georgia University's Open. It's a social media group. Thank you all for taking the time. Thank you all for sharing your perspective. Zach, best of luck to you, okay? Thank you. You too. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Kanavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. and listen whenever you want because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.